The Your Mark on the World show is made possible by our sponsors, including Clean Energy Advisors. Welcome to Your Mark on the World, bringing you another changemaker with champion of social good, Devin D. Thorpe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Your Mark on the World show. I'm your host, Devin Thorpe, and our guest today is a little bit of a departure for the show. Today we have Daphne Chen with us. She's an in-depth reporter for the Deseret News, and I'm just so excited to talk about her. She produced, she wrote one of the most brilliant articles I've ever read. She wrote what I would characterize as... Uh, an obituary for a homeless man that was ran to, I don't know, four or 5,000 words. Anyway, it was a spectacular piece that really respected and in some ways resurrected a human being. Uh, Daphne, welcome to the show. Thank you, Devin. I'm so happy to be here. Well, to begin, I want you just to, to tell us a little bit about uh, Justin Huggard, this uh, homeless fellow that you wrote about, and how you uh, came across this story and began to develop it. Sure. So um, my editor had the idea, actually. Um, last year around Christmas, there was a different man, um, a, a homeless man who died, was found on a park bench in freezing cold weather one night. And he had the idea to um, see if we could track down that man's family and learn a little bit about his life. Um, we did find that man's family, but they um, – you know, we couldn't get them to agree to participate in an article, but through that reporting, we found the story of Justin Huggards through his best friend, Amy uh, Rolf, who kind of is like a narrative thread throughout the article. Um, and what we learned about Justin, I mean, through talking to security guards, to other people who were homeless with him on the streets, friends, family, um, random strangers who knew him, um, he was just a kind, gentle, loving person who, who had a very rough childhood and that continued on into his adult life. But um, by, with, without exception, people mention how, just how loving and kind he was. Very polite guy. Um, just felt like he wasn't good enough for this world. It's, it, it was so um, fascinating to read about the fully human existence of this relatively young man who died on the streets uh, that I'm sure I must have seen a hundred times, if not a thousand times, because he was, he died a hundred yards from where I live. You know, it's, uh, uh, and so it's been a painful thing for me at some level because uh, as I think about him, being fully human, which you made me do, uh, I have had to uh, wrestle with my own complicity in his death. And, and it's, um, I think, just a brilliant uh, a bit of journalism. But uh, you worked on this piece for, I guess it was nearly five months, from the end of December to uh, the end of April when it was published. Uh, tell us a little bit about the process that uh, you went through, because you talked to a lot of people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I mean, first I'd just like to say thank you for noting just the human aspect of it. That's really what we were trying to set out to do, is if we're trying to tackle the issue of homelessness, 
um, the first thing we probably need to do is see these people as individuals um, who have had interior lives and pasts and, um, you know, hopes and dreams and feelings. So I'm glad to hear that you, you got that. Um, the process took several months. Um, like I said, it started with Amy, his best friend, and um, she was basically ready to um, talk to us, but it did take a little bit more work to get another family member to give us the green light, his cousin. Um, and then at that point, it was tracking down security guards who had known him. Um, I had to do a lot of uh, stalking people through um, Facebook, things like that. Um, I kind of hit the streets. You know, I went to places where um, other people who are homeless um, congregate or at the Dunkin' Donuts where he used to stay, um, just trying to get a more sense of people on the streets and what he was like to, to those people. Um, it, it was a lot of work because we even went beyond that. You know, after his death, what happens? Like, what kind of wheels are set into motion? The homeless advocates who try to track him down and, and, and record his death so that people can memorialize him. We talked to those people. Um, and we even went all the way to the indigent burial um, division at Salt Lake County um, to find out what happens to people who are homeless when they die. Um, someone does take care of them at the end. And um, I feel like that was a really important part of the story because it showed that um, he did get some dignity in his death and to some extent maybe more than he was treated with in life. Yeah. As you went through this process, um, I, I sort of envision uh, Justin becoming increasingly real, uh, going from sort of abstract concept of homeless person to uh, the real human being that he was. Tell us about how that evolved for you and how you communicated that in the story. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, he started off as just this box, right? Like this box of, this gray plastic box of ashes that um, does, just doesn't really convey um, who he was. And all of a sudden you think about an entire life held in those ashes and in that gray plastic box. And I would say it was the little tiny details that people who knew him um, gave us, you know, the fact that when he was a kid, his father or, or his um you know, his mother's partner would make him eat the gristle off of steaks, um, even though he hated it. You know, the um, the pictures of him as a baby, you know, everyone was a kid once. Um, the fact that the, even the security guard knew, saw and noticed that he would always share his food with people, share his money with other people on the streets. Um, the fact that the first time he got to talk to his aunt on the phone after he became homeless, he cried. Um, like, I mean, these are things that you wouldn't know just walking past the person on the street. And, you know, and obviously you can't know, but um, we wanted to give readers a sense that everybody out there has a story, something like this. The, what is the thing that you learned? I mean, clearly you started this story with a, a sense of compassion. You couldn't have written the story otherwise, mm -hmm. but did the story change you? Did you learn anything from doing the story that surprised you? Yeah, I mean, um, honestly, doing the story broke my heart. I didn't think it was going to be like that setting out, you know. And, like, as reporters, we do um, – 
cover a lot of very traumatic events. Um, all of us take a rotation on the crime desk, so we hear about these horrible crimes on a you know regular basis. Um, you know, social justice issues we cover all the time. Um, but there's something about really getting to know someone, someone um, after the fact, you know, after they've died, that just burrows deep within you and 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 makes you realize that, um, you know, our ultimate goal is to give a voice to the voiceless. And it's hard to get those stories. Like, you have to really search for them. They're not ready-made. There's no press releases for when Justin Hugger dies. Um, but it, it just kind of made me realize that, um, you know, what we do is important, and we need to work really hard at it because the most important stories are the hardest ones to tell. You are responsible to produce, I don't know, what, uh, five stories a week, three stories a week? How many stories a week? Yeah, well, so this is the great thing is I used to be a health reporter on in our newsroom, which is a daily beat. So, yeah, you know, we're doing four or five stories a week, um, pretty much a story a day, sometimes more. Um, but here at the Deseret News, we just started in, um, a small in-depth and sl- kind of investigative team. Right now, just me and one other person. Um, and this is our goal, is to do more long-form, um, in-depth stories like this that really dive deep and, and move the needle, so to speak. Um, and so um, right now, I don't have to do those daily stories, which freed me up to do the story of Justin. Um, without this new team, we really probably couldn't have done it. Now, you were simultaneously, I imagine, working on the piece you uh, just uh, published, uh, was it last week or early this week yeah. on um, uh, the state mental hospital? Yes, the mental hospital, which yes. is uh, you know, a tragic uh, story in and of itself. Give us uh, 30 seconds on that piece and then tell us how the writing of these stories overlap. Yeah, um, so, right, we, last week we published uh, a long investigative piece about how long it takes inmates who are mentally ill to get into the state mental hospital, um, right now about five, five to six months, and we profiled one young man who actually died while waiting, um, attempted suicide while in jail, um, and was severely mentally ill at the time. Um, at the same time, we actually, we actually had several things in the works. This, the Justin Huggard story, the state mental hospital story, as well as the Huntsman Cancer Institute story, that was kind of a breaking news thing over several weeks. So it was a very busy month for us. Um, to some extent, we had to juggle a lot of it, but we felt like it was time to get the Justin Huggard story out. It was 90% written and just needed a last editing push. Um, and um, now that Huntsman's kind of finished, um, we got to turn our attention to the state mental hospital, um, spent a couple of weeks on that, and um, right now we're currently working on something related to the opioid crisis. Well, these are meaty issues you're covering, and uh, I'm so glad that you're covering them so thoughtfully. Thank you. As you look at the um, Justin story, uh, you, you talk about the, the process. Uh, when do you start transitioning from the research to the writing, and then how does that fold into the editing process and revisions? Just give us a, a glimpse behind the scenes, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. Um, every reporter kind of has their own little process. Um, mine, um, I, I do spend a lot of time researching, and for me, I personally feel like I can't start writing until 
there's a sense of completion with that. It just gets to a point where, you know, you, you, I feel like I can see Justin now, you know, I really, really can see him and I can, you know, he's a real person to me. I can hold him in my hands. Um, so the interviewing took months and months and months. Um, and at that point I actually use a technique that my coworker Lois Collins uses, which is putting little bits and pieces of the story on post-it notes, um, on a wall and then kind of laying it out, um, physically to help you figure out the structure. Um, the writing took a really long time because as you said, I think it was about a 4,000 word story, which is very unusual for our paper, but yeah. I really felt well, like... for any newspaper. For any newspaper, yeah, you're completely right. Um, but I really felt like that's how long Justin's story was and that's how long it had to be and that was his story. I'm just here to write it, you know? Yeah. Um, editing process also took a, a while. There was a lot of back and forth with my editor at the very end. Um, and they help, you know, there was a lot of restructuring. This doesn't work here. This doesn't work there. I'm the type of person that'll work right up until deadline. So however long you give me to do a story, that's how long it'll take. So still making last minute changes up till the end. Uh, but I'm really, it's one of my favorite stories I've written, I think. Well, it, it was brilliant. It was an exceptional, it was an exceptional piece. Uh, you know, the, uh, the uh, paper deserves credit for, uh, allowing you to do a piece like this. Uh, you know, the, the investment of your time and money, I mean, the, you think about the, the expense of that piece. Yeah. Um, thousands and thousands of dollars of your time, uh, you know, went into that. Uh, and you compare that to, uh, you know, the six column inch piece on the city and county you know, the county commission meeting that, you know, a reporter covers. And right. They do in four hours. Right, right exactly. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's a big gamble for us. I mean, this new in-depth team, I mean, especially as a lot of newspapers are having to cut back on their in-depth coverage, um, you know, our editor, Doug Wilkes, is really ramping it up um, because we feel like there's a hunger and an appetite out there for these kinds of stories. Um you know, whether, and that's just a gut feeling. So we don't know whether it's going to pan out, but based on the responses we got and the readership we got on that story, um, I think we're on the money. Yeah, I hope so. You know, I'm a, I'm, I confess I'm a big watcher of television, enjoy television a lot, and yeah. a lot of news from there. But I, I recently sort of had the, the, the clarity to recognize that a, a typical television news story that runs for three minutes would have three to five hundred words. Yeah, there's some visual that, that helps to tell the story, but it's three to five hundred words. And right. you compare that to your 4,000 word piece, and there's just no way television news can cover the news. It doesn't really work. It just gives us a vague sense of some of the things that are happening. You have to read a newspaper to actually find out what's going on. Uh, so I, 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 I just think the, I think you're doing one of the most noble and great things there is to do. Oh, wow. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, Daphne, you are uh, clearly a remarkable person. Here you are, 24 years old, and, uh, and I think you're going to win your first Pulitzer. Uh, oh. And I say first very intentionally. Um, but... Who do you look up to? Who do you think of as a role model? Yeah. Um, there are a couple of journalists that I really admire. Um, one of my favorites to read is a Washington Post reporter named Eli Saslow, who um, actually has one, I think, 
several Pulitzers at this point for his feature writing. And he's just got this style of reporting and writing where he gets you into the head of the people he's writing about. Whether it's, I mean, he's, he's, done, a, he's done a series of people on, on food stamps. He's done a series about, um, or he's done an article about a white nationalist who, who you know, made a U-turn once he went to college. Um, he's done stuff about the Newtown, Connecticut shooting and, and the, the mindset of the parents. Um, but I think, you know, as a journalist, our, our goal is to kind of give readers a window into the world of someone com- they never would have met or talked to otherwise. And he just does that amazingly. You can feel the compassion um, in every one of his articles. So if, I mean, if he's listening to this, you're my hero, Eli. <laughs> Yeah, I've got a big audience, so he probably is. Um, the I'm intrigued by your work on social justice, including just the simple fact that you can articulate that phrase, working at the Deseret News. I think you come from Texas. Yes. Uh, so you kind of have the red state thing going on, and yet... Uh, uh, a somewhat more, I, 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 I almost don't want to insult you by suggesting a liberal view of the world, but, but I, the, the compassion for the homeless, uh, the, the, the issue, you know, the concern around social justice and mental health, those are issues that oftentimes uh, red state folks aren't as concerned about. Uh, yeah. How does that fit into your analysis, your thinking, your background, how does that all come together? Yeah, well, so, you know, as journalists, um, well, there's different schools of thought on this, but I'm kind of in the camp of, you know, stay, stay relatively neutral in your public life, um, because, it, you know, you're, you're a trusted source of unbiased news. The interesting thing about the criminal justice issues that we've covered, you know, homelessness, um, mental illness in our, and incarceration, and then coming up, you know, opioids and substance abuse is, um, really, I think they're actually, it's, these are nonpartisan issues. Everybody wants to solve them. And um, when you kind of dig deep, you know, beyond sort of like the partisan talking points, you can find that um, there's a lot of room for um, improvement and collaboration um, in terms of we all can agree that Justin was a human being. Um, we, I mean, we all, you know, who, 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 a real, real human being. Um, we all can agree that there's great costs to things like incarcerating the mentally ill without getting them better or constantly um, putting homeless people through the cycle of the courts and drug abuse. You know, so even, um, I mean, when we try to move the needle at the Deseret News, um, we're really trying to show here is the cost and here are solutions that other um, states or communities have taken that might work in Utah. Um, and, and, and maybe this is even a way to save money and, and improve care for people. So in a lot of ways, um, you know, maybe, maybe people will read sort of a liberal or conservative bent into these things, but um, really it's, um, I, I think, a nonpartisan issue and one that's really, really important for Utah and for Salt Lake City to solve. Uh, well, they're, they're important global issues, uh, and they're issues, yeah. I think, everywhere. I don't know of anywhere that they've... Uh, really solved these uh, yeah. issues, but uh, so I'm glad you're covering them. Thank you. you could be obviously doing anything. You're, you're an exceptional person. Um, yeah. As a, a struggling journalist, I 
understand you are probably not um, ready to retire at 24 because they pay you so much at the Desert News. Uh, why have you chosen to do this uh, when you could do anything? Yeah, I mean, for me, I, I wanted to be a journalist ever since I was in high school and working on the high school newspaper. It's just a passion of mine, and it's a labor of love. And I'll, I'll, I, I'll probably, probably be doing it for the rest of my life. I mean, you're completely right that, um, you know, journalists, we don't make a lot of money. And it's actually a very tough time to be a journalist right now, just financially and also politically the pressure is huge. Um, but it, it's just something that I felt a calling for. And I, I don't know how else to describe it or explain it, but it's just something I know I need to be doing. And I'm having a great time doing it. Well, you're doing a great, a brilliant job at it. Thank you. How do you think about what is your superpower? Huh, that's a really great question. What is my superpower? You know, I think the thing that has helped me the most in, in my work that I feel like um, I've gotten good at is listening. You know, some, I mean, in this world, we just, sometimes we want to talk, we want to tweet, we want to, like, be the one, the loudest voice in the room, but sometimes when you just shut up and listen to someone talk to you, you, you really hear what they're saying, and you learn a lot about them, and it, it gives people an ability to, to a space, you know, to talk about what they need to talk about. Sometimes people tell me things that they haven't told, you know, close friends or family, um, and, and, and when you really listen um, and when you can channel that person's um, thoughts and feelings into an article, you kind of create this space for people to do whatever it is, mourn, um, celebrate, memorialize, talk about solutions, grieve. Um, and I, I, I really feel like um, something that people tell me often after is, you're a really good listener. Um, and I, I love that. I love that compliment. I feel like that's the best compliment you could give me because um, I'm, I'm here to represent you. Well, I think you're a great listener. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to, to do this, Daphne. You're a, a phenomenal journalist, uh, and I'm excited to tell people uh, when I'm old that uh, I knew you when, uh, back before you won your three Pulitzers. Oh, man. Uh, I, I look forward to that. I'm excited for you, and again, I really appreciate you taking the time. Before you go, would you just take one minute and tell people how they can find you on the Deseret News, track your stories, and connect with you if they have ideas for you? Absolutely. Um, uh, you can reach me on Twitter. That's actually a really great way to reach me, which is um, my Twitter handle is Daphne Chen underscore. Um, and on the Deseret News, all you do to find my author page is search, Deseret, uh, search Daphne Chen on DeseretNews.com, and you will find all of my articles there. Fantastic. Well, Daphne, thank you so much for being thank with us today. Thank you, Devin. This was fun. Every success in your career. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. Let's do some good. Clean Energy Advisors creates investment opportunities in the renewable energy sector that provide clients with predictable income, preservation of capital, and positive impact. 
Clean Energy Advisors is committed to providing clients with investment opportunities with both market rates of return and measurable impact. Thank you for listening. This podcast was recorded via Google Hangouts on Air and is available at youtube.com forward slash Devinthorpe. Subscribe to this podcast on Stitcher or iTunes by searching for Your Mark on the World. Every weekday, Devon hosts a CEO, celebrity, entrepreneur or other changemaker here on the Your Mark on the World show to inspire and prepare you to make your mark. Devin is a champion of social good, writing about, advocating for, and advising people who are doing good. He is a Forbes contributor who is a recognized thought leader in social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and crowdfunding. To book Devin as a speaker, visit devinthorpe.com. Learn more about Devin's work at yourmarkontheworld.com.